morning, church. Um, today's scripture is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Um, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to, to the things that, God, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Thanks to the Lord for the word. Sorry to disappoint you. It's not Pastor Marvin preaching this morning. <laughs> <laughs> It is a, both a privilege and a delight <coughs> to be here, and um, I can't tell you how much I've been appreciating this uh, series of uh, studies on uh, Hebrews. And so as we turn in our Bibles today to those uh, first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3, let's just uh, bow our heads for a moment and ask God uh, to be with us and to lead us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit may rest upon each one of us now as we approach the study of your holy word, and that he would make that word a living message to each of our souls. We ask this for the glory of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, for six weeks now, we've been looking together um, at this amazing uh, letter to the Hebrews. And if you hadn't noticed uh, before now, um, it is far from the easiest book of the New Testament to understand, with its uh, numerous quotations from what often seem obscure passages from the Old Testament, and with its talk of angels and references to mysterious characters later on like Melchizedek. <clears throat> on the other hand, I hope that at the same time, you've begun to appreciate what an amazing piece of writing this letter to the Hebrews is and that you will realize this more and more uh, as the weeks go on. My earliest experience of Hebrews goes back to my uh, earliest days as a Christian uh, when I was an undergraduate student at university. Well, a friend of mine and I thought we'd like to get together uh, to study a book from the Bible. And I can't tell you uh, what inspired us particularly, but for some reason, we landed on the letter to the Hebrews. As the weeks went on, we invited others to join us, and they in turn invited others, so that by the end of the term, there were more than 30 of us are studying this amazing letter to the Hebrews together. And while we found it challenging, and at some points even mystifying, we also found ourselves being profoundly enriched with its repeated calls to focus on Jesus, the incomparable Christ. Indeed, a year later, that became the theme of a campus-wide mission 
Focus on Jesus Christ, where we invited all the students of the university to come to learn about Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews is unique among the books of the New Testament for a number of reasons. For one thing, nowhere does it tell us who the author was. Added to that, many scholars aren't sure that it even intended as a letter at all, but think it may have begun life as a sermon. Whatever the case, it's clear that uh, the author of this letter was a highly gifted teacher, a deeply caring pastor, and a brilliant interpreter of the Old Testament. But most importantly, whoever he or she was, this writer was passionate about Jesus. Passionate about Jesus. Unfortunately, that seems to have been less and less the case with some of the men and women to whom he addressed his letter. We cannot know for sure, but as Pastor Matt Mar Marvin explained to us uh, a few weeks ago, evidence suggests that Hebrews was written somewhere in the early 60s AD. And the likelihood is that its recipients were Jewish converts uh, living in Rome. At that time, Rome had a population of about a million people. And about 50,000 of those million people were Jews. It's not unlikely that uh, the good news about Jesus um, had first come to Rome with some of those who had been visiting Jerusalem uh, a generation before on the Feast of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus' disciples in the upper room. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, that event. And they were among those who had been cut to the heart by Peter's proclamation of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. They had heard the challenge to repent. They had, been, they had responded by being among the 3,000 who were baptized later on. And they had brought the good news that they had heard of God's love in Jesus Christ back with them to Rome. However, the years between Pentecost and Hebrews had not been easy ones for the Jews in Rome or the Christians in Rome. In AD 49, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from the city. And that undoubtedly would have included a number of those who had turned to Christ. Over the years that followed, many of them were able to return. But hostility towards Christians from both Gentiles and Jews was only growing. It would reach a climax under the Emperor Nero in the year 64, following the great fire of Rome. Well, with all this in mind, it isn't all that difficult to understand how many of the believers in Rome were suffering from discouragement. Some, I suspect, had reached a state of exhaustion. Others were tempted to go back to their Jewish roots, and a few were at the point of abandoning their faith altogether, if they hadn't done so already. This, then, is the audience to whom the letter to the Hebrews was directed. And I'm wondering, does any of it sound at all familiar to you? Two years of COVID have kept many believers isolated from the fellowship of the church. And even when we are able to come together, what we're permitted to do for the most part is only a pale shadow 
of the worship and the, the rich community that we have enjoyed up till this time. And besides that, we all live in a milieu that is increasingly hostile to many of the truths that we hold dear. Christian faith has become marginalized if it hasn't been demonized in many of the mass media. And added to that, cancel culture, as it's called, makes it dangerous to say or write anything that conflicts with today's social norms, norms that are becoming more and more inimical to, the, to Christian values. So the result is that we end up with Christian believers who suffer from what we might call faith fatigue. Rather like someone who's adrift in a rowboat in the middle of a storm. Row as hard as they will, the rain continues to lash down, the wind continues to whip around them, and the waves threaten to overturn their little craft at any moment. I wonder, does that match up with anyone you know? Perhaps it even describes where you're at right now. Well, if that's the case, take heart. Because that was exactly the kind of people to whom this letter to the Hebrews was addressed. And what does the writer say to them? He begins by reminding them who they are. Look at how he addresses them in the opening verse of our passage this morning. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Look at that. First of all, he addresses them as holy. Now, that's not a word I'm accustomed to using of myself. I suspect it may not be a word you use of yourself either. We may think of holy people as uh, those we consider model Christians, women or men who demonstrate all those beautiful fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. But that's not what the New Testament writers mean when they use that word holy. We're not holy because of anything that we have done, but because our Heavenly Father has claimed us for himself, because Jesus has died for us on the cross, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. You don't have to think about it for more than a moment to realize what an immense privilege that is. Well, secondly, the author speaks to them as brothers and sisters. Now, if the word uh, holy refers to our vertical relationship with God, then brothers and sisters refers to that horizontal relationship that we have with all those who belong to Jesus. That is, we have the remarkable privilege of being knit together with people of every language, race, status, nationality, whatever other category uh, you care to name. All those factors that are too often used to divide people and set them apart from one another. We have a, a, an inner unity that cannot be broken with them. I'm not a huge traveler, but I have worshiped with other believers in Australia, France, Libya, India, and Haiti, not to mention most of the provinces of Canada. And in every case, I found myself welcomed by people who recognized and claimed me as a brother in Christ. 
One of the qualities that uh, draw me to this church, to First Congregational, is the wide diversity of nationalities and backgrounds that this church embraces. We are, you and I, are brothers and sisters. And if that weren't enough, the author goes on to tell us that we all share in a heavenly calling. We look forward to the day when with all of God's people, every language, tribe, century, and nation, we will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb. What a privilege this is. It is one that sets all the worries and contradictions, all the tensions and disappointments, all the pains and setbacks that this world puts across our path. It puts them all into a totally different context. Surely these are words of encouragement if you are one of those who find yourself lonely or discouraged in your Christian walk. Well, if that is our privilege, the author of this letter to the Hebrews next calls us to look at the pattern that God gives us on which to model our lives. And I don't have to tell you what that pattern is, do I? <laughs> it's Jesus. Consider Jesus, he tells us. Consider Jesus. And the word he uses for consider here means uh, something much more than that, I think. It means to ponder, to study, to observe thoroughly, to take careful notice, to contemplate, to fix your eyes on, to rivet your attention on something. The Message Bible translates it, take a good hard look at Jesus. And what do we see when we do that? We see one who was faithful. And here the author does what he often does. He compares Jesus with a figure from the Old Testament. And this time, it's with Moses. Everyone to whom he was writing would have known about the faithfulness of Moses. In the face of threats from Pharaoh, in the face of the Red Sea, in the face of Egyptian charioteers, and in the face of the rebelliousness of his own people, Moses remained faithful to God. For 40 long years, he faithfully led the people of Israel across the wilderness towards the land that God had promised them. Moses was faithful as a servant, the author tells us. But how was Jesus faithful? Jesus was faithful as a son. Moses' faithfulness led him to give up all his privilege as a member of Pharaoh's household. Jesus' faithfulness led him to surrender all his heavenly glory to become as one of us. Moses' faithfulness led him to plead again and again to God on behalf of his wayward people. Jesus' faithfulness took him to the cross to suffer and to die for the sins of the whole world, for your sins and for mine. Moses' faithfulness brought him to the very edge of the promised land. Jesus' faithfulness exalted him to the Father's right hand, there to reign eternally in his heavenly splendor. And so it is 
that we fix our eyes on Jesus. Many of you will be familiar with the account in Matthew's Gospel when the disciples were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. They were far from shore and the wind was driving them farther away while the waves splashed over the gunnels. As things were getting completely out of control, they looked and there was Jesus. Lord, if it's, if it's really you, Peter shouted, command me to come to you in the water. Come, said Jesus. And at that, Peter stepped out of the boat and began to walk gingerly towards Jesus. But when he looked a second time and saw the wind whirling about him, he started to sink. Lord, save me, he gasped, at which Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Well, Peter's experience, I think, serves as a helpful model for us when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the circumstances that life sometimes throws at us. To look to Jesus, whose very last words to his disciples were these, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. So we share in that incalculable privilege of being sisters and brothers in the heavenly calling. We have a pattern in Jesus who faithfully went to the cross for us and promises to be with us to the end of time. And that leads us to a priority, which we find in the final verse of this morning's passage. And that priority is to hold fast. A couple of years ago, Karen and I were uh, in Australia at an extended family gathering on a lake. One of the people there had brought a high-powered speedboat from which he towed a large inflatable raft. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about? Of course, this was a source of great fun for the many children and teenagers who had come. But that wasn't enough for some of them they began to dare me <laughs> to go on the inflatable raft, to go out for a spin. Well, I can't say that I was very keen on the idea, but uh, they uh, went after me <laughs> to the point where eventually their cajoling got to me and I agreed to go out for a spin. <clears throat> we hadn't been out for more than a few moments when I could see a devilish expression cross the face of our driver as he glanced back at us. And suddenly he revved the engine to full speed and took us back and forth, back and forth, bouncing recklessly across the wake of the boat. A couple of the young people who weren't holding on tightly enough were tossed into the water. But me, I held on for dear life. And as we were buffeted by wave after wave, I managed to survive until we reached the shore. I even went out for a second run. <laughs> well, I can't say it's going to be fun like that. Indeed, very often it isn't, and the stakes can be high. For some of those early Christians, their faithfulness to Jesus cost them their very lives, and it hasn't stopped. Are you aware that there were more Christians martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined? that every day 13 Christians die for their faith 
and another, are, uh, <coughs> and another dozen are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. We can be grateful to God that while keeping the faith can be a challenge for us here in Halifax and in Canada, while it can even lose to leading friends or even losing a job, we don't have to suffer in the way that many of our fellow believers do today. But with them, the letter to the Hebrews calls upon you and me to hold fast, to keep a firm grip, not to allow anything to cause us to let go of Jesus. As we move on through Hebrews, the author will give us some practical advice as to how we can do that. But I don't want to steal from Marvin's <laughs> sermons in the, in the weeks ahead. So I'll leave it there with the encouragement to you to keep your eyes trained on Jesus, to hold fast and not to let go, even if sometimes we feel we're barely hanging on by our fingernails. And let me leave you too with the reminder that we have a God who promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Indeed, we can't begin to thank you enough for sending your Son into our world. And we thank you that he has uh, grasped us, that he has reached out his hand to us and brought us into your fold. And I pray that you would help us day by day, even in the midst of discouragement, to keep our eyes fixed on him and to keep in his firm and loving grip. We ask it in his name. Amen.